Hello and welcome to the More and More Podcast. My name is Hampton. I'm here today with a mental health guru in Mackenzie Bailey. Uh, Mackenzie, we are pumped to have you. Uh, let's start with this. Who are you and why are you interested in mental health? All right. Well, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, my name is Mackenzie. I'm a senior here at USC and I've been a part of Shandon since my very first Sunday of freshman year. So wow. I've been here. Um, me and too, actually. Yeah, that's, that's cool. wow, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I have, my parents were became believers when I was like three. So I've grown mm. up in the church, started following Jesus when I was in elementary school. Um, and that has really just shaped my life okay. in every possible way. Um, coming to college, I started out as an English major and Loved it, loved words, loved books, loved things like that. Um, and I had a psych minor, was interested in it. I had led middle schoolers when I was in high school. Um, and so I really loved, like was passionate about working with them. Right. Um, and so knew that like psych was interesting and my parents work in the field. Um, and so then after that, I had did like my, after my, the summer of my freshman year, I did an internship at a foster care group home. Wow. And that was kind of like the moment where like, how do I, who's in charge of their care and how do I do this? How do I do this forever? Mm. Um, and so that was child and adolescent psychiatry. Yeah. And so I switched to having my psych ma- major and an English minor okay. um, and just went all into child and adolescent development, behavioral mental disorders, cognitive neuroscience, all of that, fell in wow. love with it. Um, became it just really became about about those people and just really uncovered more and more trauma and what that looks like. Yeah. Um, on a personal level, uh, my mom grew up in a, in an abusive household mm-hmm. in a broken home. Um, she attempted suicide a few times when she was a teenager wow. and uh, survived that. She was a high school dropout, a teen mom of my oldest sister. Um, also was in a domestic violent relationship and wow. got out of that and met my dad shortly after. Um, then they both met Jesus a yeah. little after that. And then they like went all in. And so I've been able to watch my mom go from like like knowing her story and knowing the adversity that she came from and her own struggles with it. And she homeschooled herself through high school while we were growing wow. up. And now she has her master's in Christian counseling. And so, so wait, she homeschooled herself, herself through high school yes. while y'all were growing up. So yes. she got her high school diploma. Right. That's amazing. Yeah, that's not really even cool. She got her Does she want to come on the podcast? Or yeah. that's, that's awesome. But she is. She's amazing. And so I've been able and for them to both be because a lot of people who end up in the field, like I grew up in a great home because my mom was redeemed by the Lord and yeah. I got to experience that legacy change and be a product of that. But yeah. obviously a lot of kids are still in those situations. And to see her kind of get back yeah. into the battlefield of what that looks like and to have like the Lord um, urging her on to that and then the science that matches it to yeah. provide care on like a daily basis and my dad does the same thing um with her so they both are in practice together yeah and so that really was like i don't know like if you ask like why mental health is like how could i not how yeah. could i not love that so i didn't know all that yeah and that's really cool yeah that was not scripted <laughs> no. um so this is kind of like your legacy it sounds like a yeah little bit. that's really awesome um all right so i just want to jump in if that's okay, cool let's like do it i Probably have an incorrect view of mental health. So I want to tell you about the way I have been taught to think both by like having a strong male influence in my home, being I would consider myself a pretty like man's man kind of guy, right? Like 
I was, I'm in the rub some dirt in it kind of category, right? And so whenever I have thought about mental health mm-hmm. up to this point, even having like gone to counseling and stuff, we'll get into that later. But like my idea of mental health is keep your mouth shut, pull up your pants, right? Lace up your shoes and just walk forward, right? And so this idea for me, at least, I've seen this kind of dichotomy of like this really toxic way of looking at things that's like, I don't, it doesn't matter what you're going through, just shut up and bear it, versus this like everything is a mental health issue. So can you kind of find a middle ground for me just so I know what we're dealing with? Because I think, uh, at least for me, I've had a bad view of what mental health is. Even when we use terms like depression and anxiety, my response usually is, what do you have to be depressed about, really? Why are you anxious? Explain the clinical side to me, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Okay, no, that makes sense. So you're talking about like the cultural, like, oh, like I just have so much anxiety versus the like what's clinical. That's what I would define as like a bad view of mental health. Yeah, no, I think that it is unhealthy to go about one, like identifying as mental health struggles. So to be like, oh, I'm just anxious and this is the way that I am. And you're like, the world's going to have to learn how to understand me. Like, no, it's something that you struggle with and it's something that's treatable. So you should get it taken care of. And so I think if there's any regard of like, like kind of the toughness to it. The toughness is in having the humility to seek care and to not remain identified um, as the things that you struggle with or your, your mental illnesses. Um, And then of course, anytime that you're talking about shame or silencing, it's not going to be helpful. (laughs) So it's not really a lot of scenarios where shame or silence or stigma have been really beneficial. Um, And this is something that I've thought through and I think we'll probably get to is just as far as like, what was like Jesus's response to these things? What was the Lord's response? And like, what is his nature? And I think that gives a lot of insight. And then of course you have the scientific side of things. So we know that there's some really serious clinical phenomenon. Like we know that we can measure things in the brain and we Mm -hmm. know to some degree what's going on. It's still very much like a baby field. Like it doesn't have a lot um, of years on it of having the resources that we have now to look at it. But there's for sure clinical things, not to mention there's a lot of traumatic experience and that's usually the thing that leads to it. And so, you know, when you're talking about if you're like, oh man, I have anxiety because I have two tests tomorrow. Okay, well, like that's normal. Like you have yeah. two tests, that's, you're gonna feel a little anxious, that makes sense. Right. But if you have anxiety, you can't leave your house. You grew up in a chaotic home, that's clinical. That's gonna be something. And yeah. I think the, this is, and cause things do get overdiagnosed. That's a huge problem. Right. And uh, there's a couple things to that. One is that in every like DSM by the book, that diagnostic manual, yeah. um, description of every disorder, the main things are one, that there's like a a length of time that you need to be struggling with it for it to be classified as clinical, and also that it causes significant distress. And so that's usually something like in your job, in school, at home, there's significant distress there. And so if you're like, you know, you might feel anxious sometimes, you might like be feeling really off, but you're yeah. able to go about your life and you're you're holding down a job and you're you have friends, like you're making things things are working out, right. you probably don't have a clinical level. That doesn't yeah. mean that you shouldn't address it and shouldn't yeah. seek some help, but it's probably not a clinical thing. And right. then of course there's a time constraint, but it's also like how diagnostic labels aren't too helpful anyways, yeah. but certainly like silence and and shame don't have a place there because we were made right. for people like we need each other and we yeah. need relationship and there's a real science to that that helps so how would you define mental illness and then what are some basic factors that go into that okay so i would 
define mental illness. I think I kind of subcategorize like what is a mental illness and that's like a clinical diagnosis versus just mental health struggles yeah. where maybe you don't meet criteria for a clinical diagnosis, okay. but you still are battling with things that you don't need to battle with because right. we have ways to treat them. Um, so yeah, I think that I would define mental illness you by the ones that like we know of. So that like, you know, you're talking about schizophrenia, dissociative identity disorder, mm. all of these like big yeah. name ones that we've heard of. And then also anxiety, depression, things like that. And I think right. mental health, you can struggle with your mental health and not have a mental illness. And so right. I think those are two distinct things. Um, okay. But yeah, yeah, I would define it. I don't, I don't care so much for diagnostic labels. I've seen a lot of stuff that's like way more helpful than that. There's like really cool methods of like brain mapping and things that work with that, especially when you're talking about trauma related right. illnesses. But yeah, I mean, anything that causes significant distress to your life and right. it has to do with your thoughts and your feelings and your behaviors. And okay. it's probably going to be a mental illness. Okay. What are some like baseline factors? What are, I, I guess, what are some markers of someone who is going to have mental health struggle, mental illness, whatever the factors? I know uh, we had talked previously about, I think it's adverse childhood experiences yeah. and stuff like that. But what are some basic factors from childhood that are going to factor into that? Okay, yeah. Um, adverse childhood experiences or like ACEs, mm -hmm. you will hear them called. It's like this really, this emerging public health crisis. Um, so one in eight people have at least one ACE. And, um, so is that, is it a, like a specific instance? Yeah, so ACEs are... You can think of like anything that you can think of as traumatic in childhood. So, you know, parents are divorced. A parent okay. has a mental illness, um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse. Yeah. Um, a parent has substance <coughs> abuse problems, right. uh, death in the family, things mm. like that. And so some of those are like, you know, abuse. And then some of those are things that happen like a, a parent dies. And so wow, anything okay. that's traumatic in childhood. And so we know that the way that the brain develops it's sequential and it's use dependent. And so right. like this is what you're talking about really plastic organ. And so it's changing all the time. Like as we're talking right now, our synapses in our brain, like <laughs> these tiny little gaps are changing. And because that's just how our brain works. And especially for like college students, we're still, we still have a growing brain. Like that's yeah. still not done yet until you're about like 25. That's still yeah. growing. Um, and so we're constantly shaping our brain. And so if you think of a kid, like that brain grows like crazy. If like literally if a four-year-old has a the like 90% of an adult brain size. Right. And if you grew like that on like a physical level, a four-year-old would be like 400 pounds. Like right. it grows at crazy rates. And so those right. things are really impactful. Um, but yeah, so that's going to be, if you have any childhood adversity, that's something you want to look out for um, because it's not just like your mental health that's at risk there, right. that's your physical health. Um, so stroke, cancer, diabetes, asthma, all of those things are implicated by ACEs. So they're like more of a risk than smoking. Like things like wow. that, ACEs affect you physically um, so, far more. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Yeah, no, the, the, so you're saying, as I'm hearing it, the ACE, right? Aversive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, aversive said, childhood yeah, experiences. Right. So that is tied not only to mental health, which seems, that seems obvious, right? Yeah, if your yeah, right. parents go through a divorce or your parents, one of your parents dies or abusive home, like it seems obvious that that would make sense for mental health, but it's actually tied to physical health factors too. Yes. And am I wrong in saying physical health factors are also tied to mental health? You're correct in that. That's very so it true. So it seems like ACEs are pretty important to be yes. talking about and addressing. Yeah. Well, you're talking like if you have an ACE score of four or more, mm -hmm. then that's roughly 20 years off your life. 
Whoa. Yeah, it's really, it's huge. I didn't bring you on here for this. Yeah, this is, I, know. Geez. <laughs> I know. So yeah. it really is. And so it's a huge, it's a huge risk factor wow. um, to things like, and that's where the people who are doing research on it are like, how did we not get this before? How yeah. did we not do this? And there's a lot of resistance to it. And part of that is that it's personal. So there's like, we like to think of like, well, this subsect of people is... Like this, like, I don't have to deal with this. This is like some other marginalized group, but like abuse is across the board. And of course, different people groups have (coughs) different traumas to deal with. And that's for sure. There's definitely like problems of equity and things that play into that. But like everyone, like you, the original research for this was done on white middle-class people. Um, And so it's still like, this is across the board. This happens everywhere, which makes it a difficult thing to talk about. And because it's, I mean, it's ubiquitous. So I have a question and then probably a follow-up yeah. now because you've got my brain working. Right. But I think – so whenever I think like abusive child home, like yeah. that sort of thing, um, my brain because I think – and I'm just – to be blunt, like I think we've sexualized almost this stuff. Whereas like the sexy thing is like the Ted Bundy tapes, right? Yeah. And the serial killer celebrity that – when I think abusive childhood trauma, I think they're it's serial killers, right? Like that's who it's reserved for. Right. So how does this how do these sort of like abuse, emotional, physical, whatever, translate into just like I don't want to say normal mental health, but mental health that doesn't manifest in like the okay, Ted Bundy's so of the world, the people, right? Like okay. what is the more realistic expectation and like diagnostic implication for Okay. That sort of experience. So that is almost. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It feels like, and you correct me if this isn't where you're going at, but that's almost like a question of resiliency, right? Like, how do some people turn out like Ted Bundy, and some people? Yes, that is my question. So why, why if two, like, if there's two people that are in abusive homes, why does one become, you know, Ted Bundy, Charles Manson? Which Ted Bundy actually wasn't abused, so that's a bad example. But yeah, um, yeah. Why does one turn out to be this like horrific serial killer, and one has? depression for the rest of your life why why do those differentiate okay well if you uh, for the most part people with mental illnesses are never going to be violent right. um that's just a general statistic and okay. so so bad the, stigma yeah that's a little okay. a little bit of stigma is that like people with mental illnesses are violent which usually yeah. is not the case um but you do have this differentiation like between some people they come out of these situations like my mom was able to kind of she got out of the domestic violent relationship before she was a believer and then got into care so there's a little bit of personality attributes there's of course like the lord's intercession works in that too i mean i'm not gonna downplay that by any means but there is i mean i think that's a question of resiliency which is something that researchers look at as to like what are the factors that go into someone right. being able to live a healthy life or a relatively more healthy life than someone else? What yeah. is the difference? And so a lot of that is understanding that like kids aren't naturally resilient. That yeah. resiliency is learned and it's taught. And so they like people in this field like to say that like one caring adult is what it takes. Like just having yeah. one um, caring adult in their life. So like if a kid had a teacher who really believed in them, that really can mean the difference between their mental health and their physical health in the future. Okay. And so it's just having that like social support. And I mean, we were made for relationships. So yeah. the relationship is going to be a huge thing in building resiliency, finding bigger purposes. Right. Um, you'll hear a lot of people who deal with like trauma and they'll be like, well, I want to go into social work. I want to go into this because mm. that's like that larger purpose is going to help build resiliency. But really that like social support is going to make all the difference. It's going to 
build and model empathy and right. and provide that network. So this is not my follow up question. This is another question. Okay. My brain is like firing yeah. right now. Um, how much you you mentioned like one caring adult? How much does the like fatherhood play into this? So something that I've thought a lot about as a man. I, I my my dad's awesome, right? Like I my dad was present. My parents are married. Like in terms of uh, ace experiences, right? I don't have a ton. Yeah. So, um, and I'm and I'm blessed by that. I own that, right? Um, but what I do see and what I think statistics would support is that when a father is removed from the home or even divorced in like separate households where a father has been in some way or sh- shape or form removed, like how much does the father matter versus, because I'm not like downplaying women, but this no. is something I see as a man is like there's, when fathers are absent, it, it seems to, by every factor, begin to uh, change the way, not just mental health, but the functioning adulthood, right, is like becomes more and more difficult as you remove the the fatherly male influence. Does that play yeah. a huge role or no? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's, I don't know what the numbers are, but I know yeah. there's numbers that support that, yeah. that even with like in a, in a single mother household, you, right. you are going to experience more. And I'm sure there's some... Uh, Comparison between like single father households, there's probably yeah. just so much less than those. It seems like right there are. Um, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned this is this was my follow up, and this may be a point of mutual disagreement, which could be cool. Okay. Um, you mentioned equity among people groups being yeah. a part of the problem. Can you explain what you mean by that? As far yeah. as yeah, well, I think just knowing that so epigenetics is going to be. A I don't know what that means. That, yeah. that sounds really cool, so, but I don't know what that means. Epigenetics is basically you inherit the experiences, not just like the traits of the people who gave birth Whoa. to you, you inherit their experiences. That's and so really a lot like of a that, spiritual thing. Yeah, That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. So we relate that to a, a structure called telomeres on your chromosomes. So like those are the things that they're kind of like the bumpers of a car. And so they wow. really like protect your cells and they keep that information <coughs> safe um, as it gets messed up. And so those things, um, there's still more factors that go into it and they're looking at it a lot. It's a new branch of biology, yeah. but those will kind of get messed up. So you you basically are the next generation after experiencing trauma or experiencing mental illness, abuse, anything like that. The next generation is going to have their bumpers are not going to be as in good of shape. Um, and so you you <coughs> physically inherit the trauma of the people who have gone before you. And so we know that different people groups. So if you're black, I mean, you have a history of yeah. like Jim Crow to slavery like that's yeah. That's trauma that gets inherited. And that's why it helps explain, after discovering epigenetics in that role, it's helped explain a lot of phenomenon as to why different people groups experience different things um, because of that pattern of inheritance isn't just towards their, like, traits, but to their— Right. So in looking at this, like, I guess people group analysis, so first of all, the science behind that is really cool. I'm probably going to make— uh, our producer Caleb uh, researched that at some time. <laughs> what was that word? Telem- telomere. Telomeres. It sounds like something from Harry Potter. Yeah. But um, so it seems to me that it would follow. We're going down a rabbit trail, and yeah, I love this. Yeah, we um, are for sure. It seems to me that it would follow that the people groups that have a larger history mm-hmm. of oppression, bad. So, like the African American community clearly has a larger amount of oppression in the past, especially in America, right? right. Between slavery, Jim Crow. Um, civil rights, all of those things. It seems to me that it would follow that they would have more mental health issues then. Is that fair to assume? Yeah. And then my question would be, what does statistics tell us about that? Because as far as I know, and you can fact check me on this, Caleb, the white male population is committing suicide in the, oh, yeah. the highest rates. So why, yes, how does 
lack of equity contribute to like mental health statistics across the board? Right. And I think that bringing up the white male population is a good point there because they're still like, that's kind of looking at this double-edged nature of trauma. And so having like the generational experience of things like slavery and like segregation, Jim Crow is of course going to. It almost seems like it's built mental fortitude in that community of like, there's, there's certainly there, and the, I could pull this up too, but there's there's studies that show that the community aspect in the black community, Hispanic, Hispanic community is like ex- exponentially higher than in the white community, whereas yeah. oh, for uh, sure. function as individuals versus. Yeah. yeah. And this is, I think it's important to talk about that. Like this is across the board. And so okay. this isn't a conversation that, I mean, the original research, white middle class. And right. so that's like two thirds of people have one ace, one eight have Four or more. Like, it's just, wow. it's across the board. Um, and then So that's true anywhere. Anywhere. Okay. Yeah. And so research has been done on all kinds of different people groups. And you might see different, like, rates of different kinds of problems. But yeah. the problems exist across the board. Um, but then you also have, like, I mean, with, like, you're talking about, like, the white men. They do die at younger ages. Yeah. And some of that, like, I mean, you describe yourself as, like, a man's man, right? My, yeah. Like, the things you learn are, like... Be quiet. Figure it out yourself. Right. And we know that that's physically unhealthy, not just mentally unhealthy, but because yeah. your mental health affects your physical body. That yeah. if we experience those things or experience any struggles and we stay quiet about it, well, yeah. that's just going to – it's not going to be good this for your is, health. This is a total digression, but yeah. there's a comedian that I love who says <laughs> that men are dying younger because we've been unable to admit that we like like puppies and cute things yeah. for like our whole life. So we bottle that up and eventually yeah. we just explode. Um, White males account for 77.97% of suicide deaths. That's, that's insane. Yeah, it is. Well, and that's, that's insane. yeah, this is just a side note that we probably won't talk about, but all, I think a lot of the issues, even if we talk about issues with like feminist issues, I think have a lot to do with just like masculinity and yeah. what we do to boys and how we're surprised at how men behave by the things. No, you got to unpack that. You can't start there. What <laughs> no, is? What do you I mean? mean? If you're just getting into things like abuse mm-hmm. and the things that, because women, women are more likely to have PTSD than okay. men. And that's because things like sexual abuse and rape are more likely right. to lead to PTSD than yeah. things like, even like war crime um, and stuff like that. But, which is still terrible. Yeah. But some of that is like, I mean, Things like pornography, I would argue that as being also very much mental health yeah. issue. We expose boys to that, and then they grow up and become men who abuse and objectify women. It's, I mean, yeah. we can't be surprised. And even even when men don't physically or sexually abuse yeah. women, the objectification process that happens of every every lust object is just that. It's an object, yeah. right? It silos us, right? Yeah. Um, they talk a lot in like addiction counseling about um the process by which we we eliminate our connections and when we when we like merely sexualize connection it actually eliminates the connection altogether because yeah. you're no longer uh bonding on any level you no longer have any emotional connection and so at silos men i think i mean you can probably speak into this but the reason why it's at almost 80 percent of like suicide deaths is white males is because we are uniquely siloing ourselves it's it's our own community we we don't have the like community aspect that yeah. a lot of the black community, Hispanic community. And I mean, if you go to Latin America, right, the community centers around each other. They're always functioning in and out. Um, whereas the white community, we're, we have actually, I mean, even politicized the idea of like, you're on your own. Yeah. It's all about you. The American dreams. Man. Yeah. Like yeah. you want to be the guy that made it on your own. When we say well, he made it all by himself with no help, like that's a good thing usually. 
we at least we we try to make it a good thing and what we end up doing is just siloing ourselves yeah which clearly has some implications yeah. for sure and i feel like i saw that happen even when i was like in that foster care group home mm-hmm. for a summer the girls would very much like i like as a female i never got a message that like i shouldn't talk to other people about my problems or i can't admit right. to weaknesses like that's always just been something i can do like i can talk to friends and things right. and so they would do that like they were going through some like truly hard things, mm-hmm. but they were talking to each other and they mm-hmm. like formed these relationships where the boys would be very much isolated. And so like they would talk to the staff, but to each other, any moment where they were able to like look at each other. And I specifically remember one where they looked at each other and one boy said to another, like, that's how I feel too. And they both just started crying and mm-hmm. like stuff like that is powerful. And so keeping boys yeah. from that kind of like community or being able to like admit to struggling yeah. is dangerous. It'd be nice to be able to say puppies are cute every now and then. Yeah. Just to <laughs> kind of clear you the can. air. Yeah, <laughs> clear the air a little bit. Um, man, I'm glad we went down that rabbit hole. Um, so one thing I want to talk about today is the difference between a spiritual issue and just a clear mental health issue. And it seems, I mean, you'll probably correct me, which would be good, right? Is there's There seems to be some crossover even yeah. of like, it is a mental health issue that can be treated, but it's also very spiritual in nature. So can right. you talk as someone who is a just a super wise Christian, awesome person that I know, uh, but also as someone who is passionate about mental health? Yeah, and the, it is complicated. And so this is something I've thought a lot about because the church is really implicated in this. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a problem, but it's also understanding that we're— we're not only biological beings, but we're psychological and we're spiritual. And so there's no such thing as like separating those out completely. Um, And so I'm gonna start with like a little overview of just as far as like the history of psychological care. You're talking about like medieval stuff. So the very beginnings of treating these things, they would do something called trepanation, which is where they would like drill holes into people's skulls Seems like a bad idea. Yeah, it wasn't great. (laughs) And so they would get down to like that thick outer membrane of the brain. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that was to like, this will release the evil spirits. And so it like started out with like demonic possession is very much the origins of some of like our bare bones psychological beginnings, Yeah, um, which does implicate the church in it a little bit because this is the history. So when I go through my classes, this is what they teach me about what the church did for mental health, Um, which I know that the church does so much more and is capable of so much more. And so uh, really separating that out, I think is important. pause. So they, your classes at a university that were man nameless (laughs) um, taught you that that's what the church does about mental health. Right, this is the beginnings. This is- Okay, so is it that- the world doesn't know what the church is doing or is that that the church is not doing enough now? Like what's the, we might get there in a yeah, minute. Yeah, we'll Sorry, <laughs> sorry. I yeah. apologize. No, it's a good question. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I think we wouldn't classify ourselves as viewing things as demonic yeah. now and demonic possession, though there's a few exceptions. And I think one of those, like dissociative identity disorder or what people know as is like multiple personalities. Yeah. You've probably seen a movie where the like, Split. Split was yeah, wild. Split was one. So yeah. that's what people think of. And those are the ones where people like people who work in churches will still view as demonic. Yeah. Um, because it looks we don't understand it, it looks scary. It's yeah. like what if you see a person who has 
DID, dissociative identity disorder, then what you're seeing is someone who is one way mm -hmm. one second and then their, their personality changes. Suddenly right. they're acting like a child. Suddenly they're acting like someone who seems mean and sinister and maybe things are happening. Like their eye color changes when that happens. Things that, that happens. Look, that happens. And like, yeah, some like- That's wild. Yeah, they can have different allergies. They can have, so it's super physiological. Wait, stop. Yeah. So they can have, their personalities can be allergic to different things. Different things, yes. That is Yeah, the insane. eye colors can change. And so seeing that um, can look demonic. And so there's some homes where these people live and like, you know, like pastors will come in and be like, this is this is some demonic stuff. This is weird. And yeah. part of that is just born from like not understanding. And when right. we don't understand something, it's like, how do we make sense of this? How do we distance it? How do we address it without knowing anything about it? But if you understand DID, then you know that the cause of it is prolonged sexual abuse in childhood. And so mm -hmm. what's happening, a common response to trauma is to dissociate, right? Yeah. To like, I'm going to compartmentalize that. And so if you're experiencing prolonged sexual abuse as a kid, you literally can't survive without dissociating. You can't go to school. You can't like have a life at all unless you're able to switch it off when you need to. And wow. so it becomes super complex. And that's where you have this host personality and then these altars. And all the altars have these functions. Yeah. And so that's why some are children, some are motherly figures and are protectors. And the ones that are meaner are usually the ones that have the memories of the trauma and know what's going on. Mm. Um, and so it's this super, like if you know about it, it's a really beautiful design that our brain, like the Lord has made our brain to be able to separate out like that so you can be kept safe. And these people live productive lives. Some yeah. of them in care, they can learn to integrate back into their host or they learn how to communicate between the altars yeah. in healthy ways and keep that like almost like a functioning system right. until they can deal with the trauma. And so it's pretty much like, it's like a lifeline, a really elaborate yeah. lifeline that's made. So I want to parse out what you just said. You said that the DID, dissociative mm -hmm. identity disorder, can you view it as a beautiful design because the Lord is basically, it's, He's protecting us from trauma by allowing our brain the ability to create new pathways to the point of creating whole new personalities yes. for itself to kind of shelter us yeah. from that trauma. Yeah. That's like, I I would never have thought of it that way. Yeah. Um, because again, this is this is a, a disorder I think that's been, it's been made sexy through right. these like the movies that are about these uh, kind of, I don't even know the word to describe them, yeah. but these characters, that's the best way to describe them. They're characters right. of real people. And so- um, yeah, I would have never thought about it that way. That's really cool. Yeah, and I mean, part of that, like, when you know about it, and yeah. if you're a believer, it gets a lot easier to come to those kinds of conclusions right. because you know what's at stake and you know who's working in them. And yeah. so to be able to understand it. Um, but I do think that now, like, I think that's an example where sometimes we associate that with being demonic. But for the most part, I don't think we view things as demonic. Like, we're not drilling holes into yeah. people's heads anymore, right? But, like, I still think we find ways of poking holes into right. what we view about mental health and the Lord and how that relates. And so I think that more often, you know, it's not like, well, this person is has a demon inside of them. Yeah. It's like, well, this person, like, if they had more faith, then they know that they wouldn't need to be yeah. depressed. Yeah. Or if— they like prayed more. If they spent more time memorizing scripture, yeah. their anxiety would go away. Or even just like slipping it into lists like, oh yeah, you know, people struggle with jealousy or lust or depression and like kind of looping those things together yeah. in ways where it's like, yeah, you struggle with it, but it's not really the same category. Yeah. And so I think we're more prone to call it sinful. Um, and I think that we have some solid biblical <coughs> 
examples of addressing that. Like in John 9, whenever Jesus heals the blind man and his disciples asked him, like, well, who sinned, him or his father? Because this is, I mean, we understand blindness now, but they didn't understand blindness, what caused it. And so their first thought, like, this is sin-based and that's similar to what we do. And so Jesus was like, no, like, no one sinned. Like, this is so the Lord could be glorified. And that's me paraphrasing it, but that is, you know, what it says um, and so I think it's the same thing where like, if you came to me and you're like, man, man, Mackenzie, like I broke my arm. I'm not gonna be like, man, well, Hampton, if your faith was stronger, your bones would be too, right. you know, like it's because we understand, <laughs> right. like I have, I know about x-rays. We understand that there's a crack in your bone and not in your soul, <laughs> right. but we know the difference. And so I think yeah. it's still just getting to a point where scientifically this is new. And so culturally we have to catch up. But as believers, I think we can be a step ahead and understanding that like the spirit we have is a whole one and not a broken one. Right. Um, and so being able to separate out that like mental illnesses are not sinful. Um, and I think another good example of that is just seeing like the Lord's response to um, Elijah in first Kings nine yeah. after Elijah, like, you know, I'll do the whole fire thing and all yeah. the prophets of Baal <laughs> were killed. And then like Jezebel is hunting after him and he's yeah. out just in the wilderness, miserable. And he's crying out to God and saying that he wants to die. And so yeah. if we look at that, like if I was just describing that to you, like a case study, you'd yeah. be like, yeah, that's like suicidal ideation, probably pretty depressed if you're right. wanting to die and you're feeling that way right. that we would call that depressive. And so God's response to that wasn't like, It wasn't rebuke or it wasn't like correction or condemnation. He sent an angel to minister to him. Mm. Um, And I think a lot of times our response is like, well, this is, we should correct this or this is worth condemning because this is a faith issue or this is a sin issue. Um, But we see that the Lord's response to a similar situation was ministering. Um, And so I just think that condemnation doesn't, doesn't get a place here anymore, especially when we know all the social things behind it and that like, the way this is designed was made for our goodness. Um, And so I think maybe if there's one succinct way to separate out, how do I know what is a sin and what is a mental health struggle is just taking this functional view of it, right? So sin will always aim to destroy me. My sin will Mm. always destroy me. My sin will never serve a purpose in my life. It will always destroy. And, uh, but my like mental health, right? Things like anxiety, that's supposed to help me. Yeah. Like that has a function that has a purpose. And I mean, we right. kind of got to that with dissociative identity, but even stuff like those emotions we think of, right? If I am in the forest, this is the classic example of like <coughs> being in the forest and I see a bear. Well, I start, you know, my stress response system kicks in. I get all those neurotransmitters of enough going and I feel anxious. And so I know to run away or do whatever right. it is. That's functional. That's useful. And so where you cross into a problem is when that's happening when the bear isn't around or maybe you grew up with the bear and yeah. so you're still dealing with that. Mm-hmm. And so that's knowing good. that like sin is never, its function is to destroy me, but a lot of what we see as mental illness and mental health struggle came from a function that was, that's just been exploited by brokenness um, yeah. and something that can be repaired. But there's no way, I can't twist my sin around and make it work for my good, but yeah. we can work with mental illness and we can treat it and address it and it can turn into into goodness and into healing. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the... I guess the difference between, and we, we touched on this a little bit, but I, I kind of want to spend a little more time on it. I think there's a clear difference between like a mental health struggle, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or a mental health episode even, I would I would call it. I know that's probably not that's a fine. 
like a clinical term yeah, or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, versus a mental illness. Because, so in my experience, I went through a period where um, I was struggling to like really understand myself, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I was struggling to form relationships and to be blunt, like I was, I was, I found myself unintentionally and almost as a compulsion getting into um, relationships, but then breaking them on purpose because I was afraid of what those relationships would mean for myself. So I saw counseling, which I told you my thoughts on mental health earlier, the way I grew up was pull your pants up and do it. And so even seeking counseling was like a step out of my comfort zone to talk to somebody whom I didn't know about things that were going on in my life and in my brain and like my fears and anxieties. Um, Never like was treated with medicine or anything like that, but just through counseling was able to kind of begin to address those things in my life. And I feel like now um, there's two things. There's a little bit of like regret over the relationships that I broke and like the hurt and the pain that I just caused because I wasn't mentally um, in a place and, and it was anxiety and it was fear. It was those things. It, it wasn't prolonged by any means and it did cause distress, but it wasn't extreme. Um, so there's a little bit of like shame over that, right? Mm-hmm. That I still worked through by God's grace. But then there's like the, like, I don't really know how to talk about that because I don't want to associate myself with having mental illness because I think it's, it would be like a knock on somebody that has a like depression okay. for me to say, yeah, I've like, I've been to counseling. I've had a mental health struggle. Even saying that sometimes feels like I'm, I'm taking my, what seemed to me as like this, it was a big thing at the time, but now it looks so small and I'm taking that and applying it to this mental illness discussion, which I I don't want to like make small, a small thing out of a mental illness, if that makes sense. So how do we distinguish between those things? And then how do we seek treatment in both of those? So what can be done with both scenarios for the person like me, who counseling was super helpful versus the person with like severe anxiety, depression, clinical, prolonged, you said, how do we distinguish? And then how do we treat both of them? What can be done? Okay. Um, No, I think that's good. And I think there's, it's also important to understand that it's not like you don't illegitimize someone else's struggles by talking about your own. Mm, And so there's still like, you can, there's room for both of those things. Um, And that's one of the parts where it's a problem in the church. Uh, Lifeway research did a study and found that one out of four pastors um, said that they've struggled with a mental illness, which matches, yeah, matches the population statistics. But that's the thing where like you're a pastor, you know, you don't want to like, you don't want to talk about it if it's like messing with other people who are struggling or it makes you appear like your faith is weak or yeah. something has gone on there. Um, and so I think talking about it and not being afraid to admit that we struggle yeah. in general is a big deal. And part and like part of that is that we were never told and never made to not struggle. And yeah. so if we equate not struggling with being a believer or being an effective believer, then we're right. missing the whole point. Like we're only ever going to struggle this side of eternity. And so right. our role is to do it well. Like faith isn't going to really dictate yeah. whether or not I have a mental health struggle, but my faith will influence how I respond to it. Yeah. And so knowing that, like seeking counsel and knowing that, okay, this like experience with anxiety, depression, whatever yeah. that I'm having is going to reveal to me things about how to have better relationships, how to deal with my daily life, how to tackle mm. problems and confront them head on. Like things that are yeah. all like scriptural like disciplines to learn as well. And so I think that there's a real nature to like being able to 
not waste our struggles and to not waste the mm. fact that we can depend on the Lord, that he's made ways scientifically and through treatment to, to show us healing, that he's provided that treatment it's through really relationships and to, and that we get to struggle together. I think that really matters. Um, but yeah, as far as treatment itself, counseling, if, if someone was going to ask me just a big general answer, what kind of treatment I think is the most helpful. I think counseling over medication. Okay. Medication can has its place. Um, it also has physical it has, implications. Right, and it has side effects. You don't yeah. totally understand everything. You do like there is a withdrawal that's been a yeah. recent bit of news of like withdrawing to antidepressants and so yeah. things that can be really tricky there. And also medication, you're like you're treating the symptoms. You're not yeah. like treating the root, and so you're pretty much you're going to be on that medication yeah. for your whole life if that's the route. And it's going to change up on you because your body will habituate and will change, and your yeah. brain will change, and so you're going to have to redo it. But it's like so, the main counseling that. People do almost across the board is cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. So if you think of that principle of like thoughts determine feelings, determine actions, right. that's kind of what's going on there. So it's just helping you change the way you think, right? Taking thoughts captive and making them obey Jesus is right. essentially the science of what mm-hmm. that is, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's, is that the Christian version of cognitive behavioral that's, therapy? Well, no, it's like that's what everyone does. They just people who are not they don't realize that they're doing Yeah. But it is what they're doing. And that's why, yeah. like, secular counselors can treat mental illnesses totally effectively. And yeah. But they're, like, working from something that's true. But we just know that all truth is God's truth. Yeah, and so they still can—secular counselors can still do it, um, for sure. And But I think what people don't know a lot of times is, like, things that— even your more severe diagnoses are usually highly treatable. So the number for that, for cognitive behavioral therapy alone, so without medication, for a lot of anxiety disorders, you're looking at a range of like 85 to 90% are treatable. And that's way higher. A lot of people just do the thing where it's like, oh, well, I am my anxiety. This is who I am. Maybe you'll deal with it like throughout your life. But it's like that's through like 8 to 15 15 sessions, about 90% are treatable in that wow. amount of time. Um, so it's a good system that they've got working. They know what they're doing. Um, and then there's, of course, like there's other habits. And so just being able to seek that out, like even if you feel like your struggle is small, yeah. you go to like two times, you know, like it's yeah. not, then get a small dosage. Like if I get a little bit of a cold, I might go get like just a little medicine, take it for a couple of days, right. you know, like just, you can go and just go a couple of times. Like yeah. it's not a big deal. Um, and view it as like this is care like this is a legitimate thing that i'm doing um so therapy works um there's a lot of cool places doing a lot of cool things some things are more serious so like eating disorders anorexia stuff like that that has a really like people who treat that are usually very highly specialized yeah um some things require inpatient treatment you're talking about stuff like schizophrenia usually going to require medication things like that but otherwise like there's (coughs) practitioners who can do it um, and do it well. And then there's some general things to do yeah. about your mental health. So some of that, like, social support really matters. Like, we were made for relationships. Relationships right. actually count for about 30% of therapeutic effectiveness is the relationship with the clinician. Yeah. And so relationships really matter. And so having that, like, kind of social support, um, lifestyle choices mm-hmm. matter, nutrition, sleep, stuff like that yeah. isn't like, it's not stupid to talk about because yeah. it really does affect your mental health. So if you're like, man, I'm feeling so anxious. I sleep two hours every night. Well, like, let's maybe 
go to bed earlier. You know, right. like let's maybe figure things out. And it makes sense that college students struggle a ton with mental illness because yeah. they're the least sleeping, right? Least whatever. Yeah, nutrition is not <laughs> least there. healthy eating. Yeah, right. Yeah, and you do have like oh, like I'm feeling so depressed. Like let's drink alcohol, but like alcohol <laughs> is a depressant. Like yeah. it's not gonna help. Right. Or like you know when I'm having a lot of anxiety, I didn't sleep. Let's have more coffee. Right. Caffeine is a stimulant. Yeah. Not gonna help. You know, like there's right. just some lifestyle choices in general that are important to look at. Um, understanding your brain and brain development and right. understanding that it's like a legitimate thing um, and that we can actively shape it because it's a plastic organ and like taking that control to like, mm. you know what? Like I was told that I can take these thoughts captive and that yeah. like I can put my thoughts on trial and right. that's what I'm called and equipped to do and kind of taking that power back yeah. and then understanding the nature of hope above yeah. all else. Like right. hope is going to be, and that's, I mean, I learned that in my classes too. Like hope yeah. is the thing that is going to foreground like therapeutic effectiveness. If they have hope right. that things can be different than they are now and that there is healing, then that's going to yeah. lead to a lot of healing. And that's so biblical. Yeah. <laughs> but, and you're touching on this now, but talk a little bit about the ways in which your secular, uh, practice of treating mental health and even studying mental health and mm-hmm. the brain is catching up to um, what the Bible has already told us to be true. I, w- I will say, I think, uh, not that the Bible's primitive by any means, right? The Bible's truth. Uh, but the Bible seems to make simple, give simple instructions about the nature of hope, about the wisdom of counsel, all of those things. Um, whereas <laughs> the science to me seems to complicate some things that we yeah. already knew to be true, or at least give us the inner workings of the processes that um, that we already knew worked, right? Yeah. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. I think that a good way to think of it is people who work in mental health who are believers, they just have, like, they have the home field advantage. Right. Right? So it's hope and it's relationship. <coughs> like, mental health is about relationship. So I gave that number um, for, like, 30% of care right. is just the relationship there. And we also know scientifically that like people, not programs change people. Right. And so having that, like as a believer, you have <laughs> access to the kind of love and to the kind of hope that right. you're hoping to instill. You have a direct line. Right. And so like clinicians who aren't believers can get there. They end up getting burnt out a lot because you're carrying a lot of baggage in having to give everything to relationships when you don't have the source right. of what relationship means and you aren't connected to the relationship you were made for. Right. Um, but I think there's there's a very legitimate science to it. And so a lot of the times, like for anyone, if you're a psych major and you know that people will be like, oh, are you going to psychoanalyze me? You're like, no, I'm not going to do what Freud did because that's what psychoanalysis is. Yeah. So, no, I'm not. But also, or they'll be like, oh, so you want to talk people and be like, how do you feel about that? Yeah. Like, okay, well, I care about feelings, but not, not really. <laughs> like there is, right. as there, like you do have to have a master's degree to be a counselor. Right. And then the other degrees are doctoral levels because there is a process. So you're messing with the brain. Isn't something you want to do lightly. It's right. why like, just because I'm a Christian, if my friend comes and talks to me and they're struggling with depression, I can't, I can't give them what they need. And like, I'm, if you've had that experience, you kind of know that that's the case. Like you right. can tell like, okay, this person is just like needs to talk and needs to be reminded of some truth versus this person is really struggling and I know that I can't help them because there is a process. It is like clinicians know how to shape your brain. So they know those truths. If they're believers, they know them well and on an intimate level. And then they have the science to be able to apply them sequentially and in proper time to brain development and to promote change and healing and growth. Um, 
But yeah, but yeah, in general, I mean, mental health is about, it's way different than just treating like, I don't know, a foot. Like, <laughs> like you have to address someone's like soul yeah. when you do that. And you, cause you're speaking to their personhood, you're speaking to their humanity and mm, the brokenness of human nature. And so that like, it takes resilience, it takes hope, it takes courage yeah. and goodness and all of that. You have the source of if you're, um, if you're a believer and right. so you can get there if you're not, but it's just going to be a lot harder and you're yeah. going to get really tired from it. It's going to be a lot harder to do it in general, yeah. but there is a scientific thing to it. So it's kind of that perfect combination of yeah. here's these truths and how do we put them to action to do things like shape a human life? Yeah. I think um, we're going to try to land this plane because we're coming up on an hour. Um, <laughs> we're at 48 minutes, which is wild. Um, it was needed. So uh, yeah, I think one thing we do is like, we elevate the Bible, which it should be elevated. Yeah. Um, but then we forget that like God created this world and he created it to operate a certain way. And so we think like science and the Bible are at opposition when yeah. in reality they inform each other at every level yeah. and they should because if they're both true, then they're not going to be in opposition. Right. Um, all right. So I want to talk about uh, – we're going to transition okay. radically right here. Um, I would love to talk about a couple of headlines and just get your thoughts um, and then we'll – land this plane Let's do it. maybe under an hour hopefully <laughs> um so this headline says uh basically it's talking about a pharmaceutical company it says first it sold oxycotton then pharma company saw market for anti-addiction drug suit says so basically they were producing oxycotton they found that people were getting addicted addicted to oxycotton so they were participating in the over prescription of this drug, and then they were then benefiting off prescribing anti-addiction drugs um, to treat that. So they were over-medicating and then intentionally treating that over-medication. What role does mental health play in addiction and dependency on uh, pharmaceutical drugs? Yeah, I mean, a big one. It's kind of done a really bad job at it. If you look at it, (laughs) it really kind of sucks. (laughs) Um, But there is like the kinds of prescriptions that people give. There's not a lot of mental health practitioners. And so a lot of times you're looking at like, it's like your GP, it's your primary care doctor who's doing a lot of that when it comes to, to mental health prescriptions especially and there's also a lot we don't know about it like a lot of the research if you look into even like antidepressants those because people will give you the theory of like well your serotonin is low so this will increase (laughs) your serotonin but some of them increase serotonin some of them decrease serotonin some of them keep serotonin the same like they're all across the board but they're giving you the same message and it's just it's advertising in a lot of ways other like like in Europe where they have like they don't have that message of the serotonin right. like theory. Yeah. And so it just is kind of like the way that you promote medications or, you know, treating certain people groups like foster kids are a lot of times like your psychotropic guinea pigs. Like they'll just be on like yeah. five prescriptions because it's like, well, you're hard to handle. Here's some Ritalin. You yeah. know, like it really is just right. like, let's just change you. I don't know what this is and yeah. it's easier to not address it. So here's some medications. Yeah. But then if you're getting into like the corporate things of literally producing addictive yeah, drugs. Yeah, I think that's then, above both of our pay yeah, grade as far like, as like pharmaceutical well, companies gonna, just... They're going to come after us if we yeah, talk about like, it. We got to be careful. Yeah, I just want to say I, yeah. I don't support or yeah. not support any pharmaceutical company. Yeah. Don't at me, bro. Yeah. Um, yeah, so another headline, I'm sure you've heard about what's going on in Virginia. Their governor has got a serious case of like foot and mouth yeah. disease. I don't know if that's treatable as a mental health mm. uh, issue. <laughs> I'm going to treat it if it is. <laughs> yeah, he's, he said, um, basically, he is said that if a, a baby is born with a mental 
or physical deficiency, then they will keep the baby comfortable. And then the mother and doctor will decide together on what to do with that child. So he's basically saying, leaving the door open in their abortion laws uh, for infanticide. And then you add on that, he's been, he's recently gone through some scandal. He and like the next two guys after him. Um, what role, this is a strange question based on this headline, but what, what kind of factor does abortion have on mental health? Is there a correlation between women who have abortion versus women who experience um, depression, anxiety, any like bevy of mental health disorders? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, yeah. no, there's actually, there's specific processes for working with people who have had abortions. Mm. A lot of times you're talking about women who experience like hardship and hopelessness, right. you know, like that's yeah. no one is like really getting abortions out of a, a healthy place. Right. And so usually there's a process of kind of grieving that child. So therapists will work with these women and Mm. they'll name the baby Mm. and go through a process of kind of grieving that because it's not, it's certainly going to be traumatic in the aftermath of that because there's real ramifications to that. And so it definitely takes a toll. And I know that's a common narrative of Mm. like anyone who works with women, particularly of hearing those stories and learning to deal with it. But yeah, that's... That's heartbreaking. Like that, I don't yeah. know how you decide. It's it's honestly, it's really tough to even yeah. like, think about. All right, so the last one I wanted to talk about was um, this headline that says Instagram is going to hide self harm images in the wake of um, the uptick, I guess, in suicide among adolescents as well as college students. And this brings to mind the I think it was the Netflix series Thirteen Reasons Why yeah. that came after a book called <clears throat> The Thirteen Reasons right. Why, and basically the debate around uh, does hiding self harm versus um, displaying it and getting the issues out there, uh, which is best. So like, I I don't know the statistics on this, but it seems to me that after watching 13 Reasons Why, there's two ways you could go. You could either say, this makes it easier for me to understand um, this girl, or seeing the self-harm image on Instagram, this makes it easier to feel like I have, uh, I guess, kindred spirits in this, but also to be shocked that this is happening and want to seek help. Right. What are your thoughts? So with suicide, especially in her adolescence, so they call suicide contagious. So anytime mm. suicide happens, the Center for Disease Control is the one who comes in and studies that. So they yeah. usually happen, like if you had a suicide in your high school, there's a good chance that there's two or three more that happened afterwards. Wow. They usually happen in outbreaks. And part of that is mm. just how seeing it is a real trigger for people who are struggling with suicidality. Because yeah. the main thing for someone who's struggling with suicidality isn't depression, it's impulsivity. And so usually no one is dead set on this is what they want to do. They feel really ambivalent about it. Wow. And then so it's just the moment where the impulsivity is enough. Yeah. Um, and so with adolescents who, you know, like we, you constantly are doing what your peers are doing. Like that's just literally the time of yeah. life that you're in. Um, so you think it's probably a good thing that Instagram yeah, is hiding these images? Yeah, because and, it is like we know that that makes yeah. people vulnerable um, to doing it. And this has happened for centuries. The first cases that were documented were with a book. And there was a, a character in the book who died by suicide. And then the way that he did it was like written out and people started replicating that. So they mm. would do exactly what he did. Yeah. And so that was the first kind of instance of it. And so we know that that happens where it has this contagion effect where yeah. it is. I mean, you can think of it as contagion because that is what's happening. Um, But there also is the nature of like talking about it is important, but it's just amplifying the right voices. So a lot of times there's not like a place 
Like, I wouldn't feel like I have a place on Facebook to go and post about suicide. Like, but if other people who are sharing resources or are sharing things about it that are helpful, then there's a time to share it. But like, and a lot of this is people don't mean for it to have negative effects, but even things like posting about like someone else or like you shared just something happened that you knew about it and you share about it, it it's not healthy for people who are struggling, who yeah. are especially adolescents. So you would say in in lieu of doing that, instead promote the resources. Yeah, amplify the right voices. I'd yeah. say just like there's a place to talk about it conversationally yeah. for sure. Like bring up bring it up. But as far as like media and social mm-hmm. media, it can be really reckless. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's a good reminder to just like, okay, if I wanna like share about it, let me share this resource or these yeah. people who are working with it. <laughs> Um, because they're out there and right. they're offering good and helpful information and they know how to do it carefully. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm dying over here. Um, <laughs> so one thing we like to do on the More and More podcast is hear recommendations from our guests. You're the second one, right? So um, just a, a slew of recommendations so far. What do you recommend? What are you watching? What are you reading? Um Particularly in mental health, but also just in life. This yeah. is a culture and faith podcast. So, yeah, yeah what do you recommend? Um, for We talked a lot about ACEs. And yeah. so if you're interested about that, I recommend Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. <coughs> okay. Um, she really has brought it into the forefront. Nadine is an Nadine awesome Nadine Burke-Harris. Yeah. Um, she has a TED Talk. And so most people are probably going to opt to watch a TED Talk instead yeah. of read her book. Yeah. But her <laughs> book is called The Deepest Well. Okay. And it's very good. <laughs> um, I really recommend it. But also her TED Talk, you can look, just look it up, her name, ACEs, it'll come up a good 10 minutes to learn like the physical effects Mm. of what it is. Um, And it'll like change the way that you view this issue and you view other people and how other people are struggling. Um, And then also for anyone who, I know anxiety is super common. And so The Anxiety Cure by Dr. Archibald Hart is a good book and a good resource for that. (coughs) And of course, go see a counselor. I guess that's my most important recommendation yeah. <laughs> I could make. Yeah. Um, and then there's one podcast called Life, Love, and Family. Life, Love, Life, and Love, Family. and Family. It's put together by a bunch of the American Association of Christian Counselors, different right. doctors and counselors who work for them on like every kind of topic. So you could just kind of search if you have a particular struggle or interest. Right. You could find it on there. It is sometimes a little like they're a little cheesy. They're not. <laughs> they're not Hampton. But It is still like it's good information from (laughs) people who know what they're doing. Um, And then I was told that I could plug my own Instagram. Yeah, you should. You should promote whatever you want. At Mackenzie P. Bailey. At Mackenzie P. Bailey. Um, Follow it right now. (laughs) Follow it right now. Um, Well, Mackenzie, this has been an absolute joy um, to have you on. Seriously, this conversation is so important, especially when we think about college students. I mean, the. You know this, right? The numbers are through the roof mm-hmm. of college students that are struggling and struggling and not getting help. Yeah. Like they're not reaching out. Uh, so I think the more that we have honest conversation about it, the more that we can, like you said, amplify the right voices, especially as Christians in a world where we know the hope, right? right. We have the life preserver and we just need to throw it and, and allow the Lord to do um, what only he can do. So you're awesome. Really glad you're here. This has been the More and More Podcast. My name is Hampton. Uh, follow at Shandon College to promote shamelessly our Instagram. I also follow at Mackenzie ba- P. Bailey. Sorry, Mackenzie. Yeah. What's the P stand for? Um, Paige. My Paige. I would have kept that a secret probably. <laughs> um, at Mackenzie P. Bailey at Shandon College. Uh, thank you, and we'll see you guys next week.